Revelation. The word revelation is about the revealing of Jesus Christ in his fullness. It's about revelation of Jesus, not a revelation of fun and weird stuff. <laughs> it's ultimately it's about him. And we come to the end of our four-part series on eternity. And uh, today I'm going to talk about something that gets into a lot of detail, but there's a lot of picture language here, and we need to understand what it means, what its message to us, why it's in picture language, and why those particular pictures are described to us. But today I want to talk about the new earth. And I got quite excited when David Attenborough's new series on BBC is called Planet Earth 2, and I thought they made a programme about my sermon. <laughs> but no, it's about this planet still, just lots of animals on it. But John, uh, three weeks ago, kind of answered the question, what happens when I die? He described in the spirit, those of us who are his get to be with him, be with Christ in paradise by the spirit. In the meantime, our bodies are still here on earth in a coffin or in a little urn or something else, I don't know. What happens after that? We can, we can find out that we can trust that in Christ we get to be with him. The moment we die, you get to be with him. But what happens? Does it stop there? Or is there more to that story? That's what I want to look at today. Can we know more about that future? Because the Bible promises that the people of God have an amazing future. An amazing future. In fact, the Bible says that life after death is only half the story. Oh. In fact, the Bible says that there is life after life after death. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Because the thing is this. Jesus isn't about starting again all over with a whole different bunch of humans because we missed it up, actually. He gives us, his people, when you place your trust in him as the only means to salvation and standing right before a holy God. He gives us new life on this planet right now. You are a new creation if you're in Christ. You are still you, but you're a new creation. You're a new you. You're still you, but you're a new you. And he gives you a new life. But he also gives you new life after death. But he also gives you life after that life after death. When Father one day calls it a day, says enough, the end has come, then the ones who have rejected him will finally get what they've asked for, absence from him. Sobering, we talked about that last week. If you weren't here last week, you can go back online and listen to the sermon. But for the rest of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ as our rescuer and our Lord, he will reboot this earth reboot us effectively, this universe as well, for an eternity of celebration and discovery together. I want to talk about three things today. Three C's to make it easy for you to remember. I want to talk about a city. The Bible talks about this amazing city in the future. What is that city? Why are those details mentioned? We can learn about actually what this city is actually referring to. City. Talk about culture, just briefly. There's some implications, some clues in the text. We can understand a bit of what life there will be like. And then I want to finish on Christ. Best place to land. Three C's. City, culture, and Christ. But first of all, I just want to start with our bodies, actually, because it will help understand what it means about this new creation of the earth, this new earth, what it means. You see, in paradise, we get to be with Christ in the spirit, and our bodies are still here, whether they're buried or cremated or whatever. But then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you don't need to turn there, stay in Revelation for now, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. He talks about the resurrection of the dead. One day, our bodies will be resurrected. But they're going to be slightly different. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sorry, this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. 
So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown, as in put in the ground, our bodies will be left behind. People in mortuaries and people in coffins, they're not there anymore. That's just a lump of meat. And it decays and it rots, doesn't it? It's perishable. But it says these bodies, when they're resurrected again, they will then be imperishable. They're the same bodies, but they're now different. There's a whole degree of something else going on here. So what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. It's still a body, and it's still the same body, but it's different. Something else is going on. You see, Jesus' resurrection body was still his body from before he ended up on the cross, but it was different. He still bore the scars in his hands and his feet from the nails on the cross. He still bore the scar on his side when the spear pierced him. It's the same body. And yet, when you read in the Gospels, that same body could walk through locked doors and zip around the country faster than any man could walk or ride in the day. When you look at the timings and the locations he ends up, there's some kind of teleportation going on. There's something else. Some, some, some theologians believe he was zipping to and from heaven. He's up with the Father and then back in Galilee and then up in the Father and back in the Jordan and then in Jerusalem. He's going to zip him back. You look at the timings, it doesn't work. There's something clever going on here. And this same body walks through a locked door. It's the same body, but it's different. And so when you see in verses like 2 Peter chapter 3, one of Jesus' best friends, Peter, he says that heaven and earth will be burnt up. What it actually means, it doesn't mean, it's not talking about a fresh start by burning that up, getting rid of that, waste new ingredients. Burnt up as in purification. It's about a purification going on. This isn't a second brand new creation we're going to be talking about, the same with the bodies, but it's a recreation of the existing world in a whole new glorious way we can't even imagine. What, what happened to Jesus' resurrection body will happen to our resurrection bodies, will happen to the earth as well. It's the same principle each time. Does that make sense? Does that help? So Jesus will renew this humanity. He will renew this world. He will renew this universe. It's not brand new ones all over again, which is good news because Jenny and I, we can right now, many of you know us and what she's going through. She's got spinal surgery coming up week after next. We can relate totally to wanting release from a world of pain and suffering. And that's often the kind of thing we look forward to. Oh, there'll be no sin and no sickness and no death. We look forward to that. But it's so much more than that. We don't even get it yet. We'll be participating in something even purer and greater than even that. We just don't, our little brains can't quite comprehend it. But if we can think about what happens to our bodies, we can get more of an idea of what's going to happen to this planet as well. So let's take a closer look. It might feel a bit breathless. There's lots of detail here. But there's some bits we'll miss out, but we just need to focus on the core parts. Revelation 21. We're going to look at the first few verses of chapter 21, first few verses of chapter 22, just get an introduction to what's going on, and then we'll look at the verses in between. Okay. So look at the city. Revelation 21, verse 1. This is Jesus' best friend on this planet, John, is given a vision of what's going to come. This is him writing it down. He says, Then I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. We understand this is kind of a rebooting. It's not brand new. And the sea was no more. It's a bit weird. And I saw the holy city. Here it comes. New Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And if you want to skip to chapter 22, some more introductory verses there we can use. Um, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of this city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, that means under judgment. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What a massive picture of heaven and earth melted as one, effectively. What's interesting, though, this is what I mean about it's not starting all over again with a brand new humanity, a brand new earth. Otherwise, it'd be back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis, there was a garden. What he's done, he's transported that. He's even resurrected that to a whole greater thing you couldn't have imagined at the time. It's now, it was a garden, it's now a city. That's the story of the Bible. It's from a garden to a city. It's different. Creation to new creation. What's surprising here, most of the detail here isn't there will be this, 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 and this, lots of positive detail. There's a huge amount of negative detail. There won't be this and there won't be that. Just do you get this? Do you get what won't be there anymore? That's what he's saying. He says there's been no sea. We'll look at that in a second. There'll be no death. There'll be no crying, no pain, no sun. We'll look at that in a moment as well. There'll be no night. There should be no temple. We'll find out in a minute as well. What's going on here? Why is he trying to point these things out? Let's just look at a couple of those. No sea. So, oh, there'll be no sailing. Who likes sailing? Who likes going on boats, mucking around on boats? I think possibly there might be a physical sea. We've got to understand this is picture language. I'm not saying there will be a sea either. I don't know. What it means by this is we need to understand this from Hebrew imagery. Hebrew poetry in those days, the sea was a very obvious statement about disorder and chaos and danger and division and death. That's what the sea represented. So any Hebrew poetry, like there's sea, you're like, ooh, don't go anywhere near that. It's dangerous and death, divisive, disorderly, chaotic. She's saying there will be no chaos here. There will be no disorder, no danger, no division, and no death. Doesn't sound wonderful. But there is something that takes its place in the picture language. 22 verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. There may not be sea representing chaos and disorder. Instead, we've got a river of life, this source of life. We don't have death anymore. We've got life. This is the message he's trying to get across here. Don't worry about the details, the geography. Get what's more important here. No more death, permanent life. Isn't that amazing? So let's take a little bit more of a look at this city where we understand this is a place where there is no more death, no more chaos. There is order and beauty and life in this place. Let's look at the details and understand why he describes it as a city. So 21 verse 9. Let's read those verses in between. 21 verse 9. John continues. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. This is some of the final judgment, just tying up things. And he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, 
the wife of the lamb. The bride is picture language for the church, for us, his people, throughout the Bible. That's what the bride means. He's talking about the church. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. Which way are we? East, is that east? On the east were three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four squares, four square. It's a square on its base. Its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. This is 1,400 miles. Here to Athens. Get that in your head. It's from here to Athens, wide. And its length and its width and its height are equal. So it's from here to Athens, one side. Same distance the other way as a square, and the same distance high. Well, that's ridiculous. That reaches space. This is huge. And he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement. That's about 200 feet. The point here, a 1,400-mile city needing a 200-foot wall to protect it, the point is it doesn't need protection. It's just defining a boundary. Okay? It doesn't need protecting. It's just to go, here's the city. And he continues... The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, I don't even know what these look like, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and some of those I've never heard of. It sounds amazing. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. In the next verse, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. It's 1,400 miles long here to Athens, same wide, the same high. That makes three billion cubic miles. What's this trying to say? See, this doesn't mean it'll be a few breathless believers echoing around a gargantuan ghost town. A few thousand cubic miles each. That's not what it's saying. In fact, Revelation 7 describes a great multitude around the throne. There is going to be a lot of us. God's family is bigger than you think. We're not some small straggle of believers just getting in at the last minute. Three of us made it. It's not that at all. There's a lot more than you think. But also, it doesn't actually indicate a scene from an old black-and-white sci-fi movie with these great golden skyscrapers and walkways and flying taxis. And it's, it's not that kind of picture. Remember, this is picture language. So what's he actually saying about this city? We've got to understand, he's not actually describing, effectively, bricks and mortar. He's describing people. Why? How did the angel first introduce John? I'm going to, come and show, I'm going to show you this city. He used a different word beforehand. Let me show you the bride. Let me show you the church. Let me show you God's people. Here's this big city coming out of heaven to be on earth. What he's describing is us. He's not describing architecture. He's describing us. The 12 gates, 
How are they named? They're named after the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 gates represent the Old Testament community, God's people before Jesus came on this planet. And the foundations have the names of the 12 apostles on. They represent the New Testament community, God's people, including us, after Jesus has come. So this is his people. And look how massive and beautiful and shiny and glorious it is. And also the temple was no longer required. There isn't a meeting place for God because this is his meeting place. What shape is this city we're talking about here? What shape is it? It's a cube. Any scholars here who know what shape the Holy of Holies in the temple was in the Old Testament times? It's a cube. Suddenly, God's people have taken the place of the temple. We are his dwelling place. The Lord is within us. We don't need a temple anymore. We won't need a temple then. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul describes us. He says, you are his temple. Now, Holy Spirit resides in you. You don't need to go to this special place you've built or this tabernacle tent or this place on the rock where you need to go and meet with God and that's where it all happens. He's in you now and he'll be in you then. And you'll be with him unhindered forever. You don't need a temple anymore. You're his temple. This holy of holies is us. There'll be no inner rooms or outer rooms or walled courtyards around this temple. God turns his believers into his living temple. It's us now. We need to understand. We try and picture the future. We have a certain way of thinking. We need to understand. We just don't get it yet. We've got to think in a whole new different way that we've never been able to think before. In fact, we still won't until we get there. It would be like, oh, like that. There's quite a famous classic uh, Victorian tale by a guy called Edwin Abbott called Flatland. And he wrote this, t- it's a book, he wrote this story where this place, Flatland, is literally flat. It's two-dimensional, completely flat. Women are lines. Men are triangles, flat triangles and squares. Priests are circles. And our hero is a square. It's completely flat, just just width and length but no depth and he gets to meet this sphere and this sphere says let me show you something else let me take you to my world come along to my three dimensional world where we have depth and height he's like what is depth and height I don't understand what that is this is all I've ever known flat land he says no come along and this sphere takes him to this three dimensional world and introduces him to this whole other way of existence he didn't realise was possible it's going to be the same for us just try and imagine yourself you've only ever lived on the flat and you're taken to somewhere that looks like this. You'd be like, whoa, I can't even, whew, hang on a minute. I'm having trouble standing up. Getting dizzy here. It's going to be the same for us. We need to understand this is, John is struggling to get into words what he can't even put into words. He's just trying his best, bless him, to go, guys, this is just going to be, boom. Get it. If you want to turn to Isaiah 60, we then discover there's already been a taste of this described 700 years before Jesus rocked up. Prophet Isaiah, somewhere around 700 BC he wrote this. He wrote a number of prophecies that described Jesus' coming and details of when Jesus would arrive and what would happen to him. But he also wrote this about God's people in the future. This whole chapter describes the future of God's people. It's glorious. It depicts all the nations flocking to this new home. It describes their wealth being unlocked for God's kingdom purposes. It describes their leaders being humbled before what God is doing. It's an amazing picture. We won't read it all now, but we will go to verse 19. Isaiah 60, verse 19. The sun shall be no more. Hang on, we just read that somewhere, haven't we? 
He's already describing what we've read in Revelation. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light. Here we go again. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. There will be no need for a sun. God will provide the light. John's already described that in Revelation 21, 22. There'll be no need for sun. Why? Because God will be dwelling unveiled with his people. If 1 Timothy 6, verse 16 says that he dwells in unapproachable light, it's why we've never seen him fully with our eyes yet, have we? And yet one day, as John himself says in his, in his first letter, 1 John 3, he says one day we will be like him Suddenly we're in a position on this new earth. Us, his new city, his people. We're like him. We're able to look at him with unveiled eyes. This God who dwells in unapproachable light will be able to see it fully, 100%. Fully revealed. That's why we don't need a sun. Our God will be in front of us, unhindered, unrestricted, unveiled, unrestrained. So in Revelation 21, it described the jewels in the walls and in the city, didn't it? In us, effectively. There was jasper and gold and glass, different jewels. This city reflects this brilliance back at him. It's a bright, shiny, it's going to be, it's going to be blinding, literally. It's us, his people, reflecting his glory back at him by our very essence of who we are. Glory will shine out from him, we'll reflect it back to him. It'll be God and his children, glory shining and bouncing from him, off his people, back again for eternity. I still can't quite get my head around this, but it's what it tells us. And then right at the end of Isaiah 60, there's a lovely great promise here that we can really depend on for today. Because some of this feels a bit abstract still, doesn't it? This is quite hard to still get our heads around. We're still on the two-dimensional plane, and until we get to this three-dimensional plane to actually see it, oh, like that, we're still not going to get it till we get there, are we? But at the end of Isaiah 60, verse 22, it just drops in this little bit at the end. He said, The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten it. The least shall become a clan, or a thousand. That's what it represents, the smallest one a nation. What does that mean? It means that the least confident of us can still expect to lead many to Christ, I believe. You may not be there when you sit down and pray the prayer with them, all of us have a part to play in leading many people to Christ. I think it's a promise we can lean on. It doesn't feel like it today in 2016 UK at the moment. I believe that's going to change. It means that we can look around us and realise that he is doing something so much bigger behind the scenes than we give him credit for sometimes. We look around and go, God, where are you? He's like, if you only knew what I was doing. We've got to trust him for that, Seriously. This means that we get to roll our sleeves up and participate, knowing one day we'll see it fully revealed. It's for the eyes of faith, trusting what he might be doing already. It tells us there will be a multitude living in eternity with God. And what better than being the privilege of being invited in to be a part of that and the privilege of getting to invite others and lead them into it as well. That's for all of us. That's not for the experts, not for the employees. That's for all of us to do. I think it's exciting. 
So all I say is don't belittle your prayers or your expectations of what he can and will do. This town hasn't even started to hear about Jesus yet. Watch this space. But it starts with us, doesn't it? We're running out of time, but I want to talk... That's the city. That's the bulk of it. That's the, that's the details of the city. There's plenty more you could unpack there. We just don't have time. Let's talk about culture. Because the point is, it's a city. We are described as a city, not a stadium. Sometimes pictures of eternity is this stadium. We're all in our seating, all in our circular rows, all around the throne, singing hymns forever. Some of us, that sounds wonderful. Some of us, that sounds like an absolute nightmare. We're not, a, we're not described as a stadium. We're described as a city which means culture. It means culture, creativity, community. There's some little clues here we can depend on. Time, for example, it's going to go on for eternity. So in some ways, hours and minutes are a bit irrelevant. But there is an essence of time here because we see sentences being uttered in heaven in sequence. We see events happening, transpiring after each other. And then in Revelation 22, when we see the tree of life on either side of the the river... It's been described as bearing a different fruit every month. There is a journey, and there's still a passage of time, probably not still like quite how we experience it now, but there is a passage of time. There is a journeying. Of, there's a journey of relationship and enjoyment. It won't be some amorphous just existence. There'll be stories to tell and stories to see unfolding in front of us. Will there be work on the new earth? The good sense of the word, yes. Not the one, oh, nine to five, desk job. Not like that. You'll be okay. The right sense of, wor- of the word work. There was work before the fall. There was work in the, in the garden. Caring for the earth, tilling the soil. There was good work. So there will be work again, I'm sure. Because Revelation 22, verse 5, he describes us as reigning, his people reigning forever and ever. We've well, got something to reign over, haven't you? To reign means to have authority, to rule, to have responsibility, to have consideration for whatever you're responsible for, to make decisions over creation. If this earth is the same earth but now rebooted to the nth degree, whatever that means, if our bodies and our planet will be resurrected in a new way like Christ's body was, then there is infinite scope for involvement and stewardship. There will be some form of work, there will be things to do and to enjoy and to do together. We will get to live for God in a way we've never done before. We'll get to serve God in a way we've never served before. We just don't get it yet. Creativity, who knows what we're going to discover. But if we're made in the image of a creator God, and in Christ we get to find out what it means to be fully human and therefore fully creative, then on the new earth there will be no obstacles to realising the fullness of that, I believe which means there will be every opportunity to fully represent the Creator in our very being, investigating and making and collaborating together. This culture is going to be exciting. Things to discover. Will there be food? There'll be food. There'll be food. I was at a dinner, dinner and dance for one of the foster agencies I work for on the side. I had a dinner and dance last night. And around our table, two people didn't turn up. So the waiters kept bringing their food out. So we had their food. We're trying to work out, what's the etiquette for waiting? How long do you wait till you have their food only for them to come in the door late? Do you know what I mean? Like, How long do we leave? Is it eight o'clock? Right, let's leave another five minutes. And eventually, just before the waiters came out to take the starters away, we had them. Oh, they were lovely. Oh, I had two starters. We had the main courses, some of their puddings. It was lovely, very nice. I had a belly for the first time in my life. It's gone again now. 
It's gone again now. But I did have a belly last night. I was carry, carrying a food baby. <laughs> Revelation 19 verse 9 describes the marriage supper of the Lamb. We've already seen God's people, us, being described as his bride. There was one day. We're in, we're in this full betrothal period now where we are his, but there'll be a marriage supper to come. It's where the Jews used to do it. When we have an engagement. You can break off at any minute. It's just a ring. But then one day you're married. In the Jewish times, they still do it. If you're betrothed, your husband goes away to prepare a place for you, he comes back for you, but you're as good as married. You haven't consummated the marriage yet, you don't live together yet, but you're as good as marriage. That won't, to, to break that, you've got to go through a whole divorce proceeding. We're in the betrothal period now. We're fully his. And yet one day that will be fully consummated at the marriage supper, at the wedding feast, at the party. And there will be a feast. There'll be food. There'll be food, don't worry. There was food in Eden before there was death. There'll be food in the new earth. I'm positive. I'm banging on it. Oh, yes, definitely. Yes. Yes. There will be community. It'll be God's people with him forever. This is family. He's our father. That word gets used over and over again in the New Testament. He's father. He's father with his kids. He's going to hang out with us and enjoy. You see, he walked in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? He just wanted to be with his people. He just couldn't resist. There'll be community between us and with him. There'll be joint celebration and feasting and exploration and enjoyment and true unity and diversity. Real equality and diversity in that place. There's one thing we don't want to forget as I end. Revelation chapter 22, that final chapter of the Bible. Some of the verses we just read. There's one more thing I need to point out. Let's read the first three verses again. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Where does this source of life come from? From him. Through the middle of the street of the city, through us. And either side of the river, the tree of life, which we originally saw in the Garden of Eden, it's back again in a whole new way. How can one tree be on both sides of the river? I love it. Again, we don't get it but we'll get it when we get there. With its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, how does a tree yield different kinds of fruit every month? I don't know. See? It's to the nth degree. We just don't get it yet until we're there. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. There'll be nothing under judgment anymore. That's all dealt with. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. What's the name used there to describe Jesus? The Lamb. The Lamb is at the centre. That name is chosen on purpose, isn't it? That's deliberate. That's deliberate. He could have just said, Jesus would be there, or the Son will be there, but he uses the Lamb. It's a really interesting word, isn't it? That word is chosen on purpose to remind us of the cost it took to make this new living temple, this dwelling place of God possible. The Lamb represents sacrifices made to take the place of us, to deal with our sin. As the, the lambs were used throughout the Old Testament sacrifices, simply as a precursor to point to what Christ would do one day. And he is called the Lamb of God because he's the one who sealed the deal once and for all. He took our place. He sacrificed himself. He died and he suffered for you and for me. He took the judgment upon himself. He hung there as a cursed one so we don't have to be. The Lamb who rose again in victory. So it only needed to happen once. And it's dealt with. And all we have to do is place our trust in him. That lamb will be in the midst of us. It's all because of him. 
This place is going to be glorious, but we can spend so much time thinking about how wonderful it will be, the stuff we get, we forget about the one who made it possible. And I was asked a few, week, a few weeks ago, what is your promised land? Is your promised land X, Y, or Z, things you get from the giver, or is your promised land the giver himself? Does this sound remotely appealing? <laughs> Do you want to be there? <laughs> Good, Iris does. If not, why not? I mean, listen to this. Sure, this stirs something a lot. I wish this were true. Some of you might be here thinking now, this sounds all well and good for you Christians, but it just it sounds lovely. I'd like it to be true. See, the same man of history, Jesus, who claimed to be God, is in other textbooks, other history books. He's not just in the Bible. He's a real man who did and said these things. He claimed to be God. And he vouched that one day he would die and rise again to prove it. And he did. He did. He's the same person who paints this picture of the future and he warns that not everyone will be there. It's a choice we all have to make, isn't it? It's about relationship. It's about his people. You should remember, the point of this picture language is not about the geography. Actually, it's about the demography. It's not about the place. It's about the people. It's not about the terrain, it's about the tribes and tongues that will be there. God, when he made creation, you see it right at the beginning of Genesis, he considered creation to be good. Yet when he made mankind, he considered it to be very good. And he hasn't changed his opinion. Of utmost concern isn't a life unhindered by this world's painful baggage of sin and shame and death. Well, as much as that is all true and all good, they're the gifts from the giver. Of utmost concern is a life with him, unhindered by anything detrimental to that relationship. He is our greatest reward, and he'll be there in the midst of us forever. The wonders of the new earth are not so much possible new creatures, or new sounds, or new colours, or new landscapes, as much as they may well be there. We're missing the point if we start focusing on that too much. The wonder of the new earth will be an awesome God and his people, in unhindered harmony, enjoying each other forever. This new regenerated world requires a new regenerated people. And that starts now. If you haven't experienced that, what it means to be a new creation in Christ, that can start today. Pleading with you, please come and speak to me. If you don't get any of this, please, I'm happy to spend as much time as we need to during the week to talk it through. We'll have a coffee, whatever. Go out for a beer, come around for a meal. I'll talk it through. But don't delay. Don't miss out. In the second to last verse of the Bible, Jesus himself says, I am coming soon. Are you ready? Are you on course for missing out, maybe? This life effectively gives us one chance to choose. Don't miss out. When he says he's coming soon, that could be any moment. I don't know when that's going to be. In fact, when he was here on this planet, even he didn't know when it was going to be. He says so. At the time, only the Father knew. One day he'll be back and it'll be too late. But believer, are you looking forward to him or are you looking, just looking forward to the place? Are you looking forward to the, the gifts or are you looking forward to the giver? Are you grasping the privilege of inviting others as well into the true freedom that Christ has made available to him? Are we joining in the adventure of getting to invite others in to experience this? Would you like to stand? I'm just going to sing a song to finish.